Welcome to Kindred Media, a nonprofit initiative of Kindred World. Kindred has gathered thought leaders, researchers, and activists exploring the new story of the human family for over 15 years. Visit our website for our new story features, interviews, podcasts, and video collections at www.kindredmedia.org. Welcome to Kindred. This is Lisa Reagan, and today we will be listening to Dr. Suzanne Ziedike share how Scotland is on track to become the world's first ACEs-aware nation. The country's holistic approach to treating violence as a virus has led to a 50% reduction in violence in big cities like Glasgow. On this podcast, we will hear Dr. Ziedike share her experience of working with police departments, child care centers, and hosting an ACES conference of over 2,500 attendees in 2019. As a dual citizen of America and Scotland, we will ask her for her insights on the possibility of bringing this cultural transformation to the United States. Dr. Zedike is a research scientist at the University of Dundee and began her academic career with a doctorate from Yale University. She is the creator of the film and educational project, The Connected Baby, and the author of multiple books on the science of human connection. You can also read her blogs here on Kindred as she is a contributing editor. So welcome, Dr. Zedike. It is a delight to be with you, Lisa. I can't believe it's been 10 years since we talked, I think, about The Connected Baby, the film that you did. And uh, that interview is on Kindred. People can go listen to it and if you do, what you will hear is Dr. Zedike telling me that she has been working with the local police department on understanding attachment and childhood and how it related to, uh, relates to violence in Scotland. And uh, I, I couldn't believe it. And, and, and now what has happened? I mean, this is, an, oh, by the way, we have that video. It's gonna be wherever you find this podcast. You can roll down and, and we'll put that, uh, her interview with the police um, next to this so you can find it but I couldn't believe it back then. And now it is uh, responsible for a tremendous drop in um, violence in Scotland. The, the ACEs aware, we call it now, attachment back then. So how did that happen? It's a brilliant story and I am so glad you have asked. Um, let me embed that within my decision to step away from academia because I am a developmental psychologist. I study infant development, why relationships matter for the whole of your life and how they shape who you become, your experiences in that early time. And I loved being a basic research scientist. And at the same time, I got frustrated because I began to realize that I had access to information that I thought was really fascinating and important about how babies develop, and the wider world really did not have access to those publications, to those discoveries. And I thought they deserved it. So I thought parents deserved to know, and social workers deserved to know, and childcare staff deserved to know, and police deserved to know, and politicians and manufacturers of baby buggies. And I thought people deserved to know that stuff. So when I last spoke to you 10 years ago, I was in the process of stepping away from full-time academia to what I do now, which is to work with the public and try to translate that science for them. Mm. And the core message of that science for me is that babies come into the world 
already connected to other people. So human beings are wired in their brain and their bodies to um, for relationships, to expect other people. Uh, babies who are in the womb in the last three months of pregnancy, they can hear their mother's voices, their mother's voice, and the voices of anyone else who's in their world on a daily basis. So their father's voice, their grandma's voice, their big sister's voice. I think that's fascinating mm -hmm. that you already know who is going to be in your world. You can hear that through the walls of your womb and you can pick up whether they laugh a lot <clears throat> or sing a lot or whether they shout and cry a lot. Mm. And your experiences of the tone of that voice and the rhythm of that voice and the hormones that will go with that, i.e. if your mother is producing stress hormones because she's, um, because she's worried about life, because she's in domestic violence, um, because her life is uncertain, she doesn't have enough money, she lives in a violent neighborhood, she copes with racism. The, those would produce stress hormones. <clears throat> and if she was more relaxed and not scared, she would have different kinds of what I call teddy bear hormones that help you to relax and feel comforted coursing through your body. Okay, by the time the baby is born, the baby's brain and body is already being wired, if that's the right word. And some people don't like that word. So you think, what word will we use to get across the idea that you are already born with an expectation of what your world will be like? Who's in it? How um, stressful is it? How predictable is it? How scary is it? How safe is it? How much laughter will there be? That's already wired in your body. I think that's amazing. I think it's endlessly fascinating. And then <clears throat> babies are really tuned in to the way other people respond to them and how they treat them and what that feels like. And that goes on to influence their biological development. And so what I wanted to do was to help people to understand that and to help us to think about what that means. And so when I spoke to you 10 years ago, I didn't know if I would be able to feed myself even for the next year. Of course, it's 10 years on and it's really celebratory. So what I can tell you now is that people want to know this stuff. Wow. If you make science accessible to people, they're interested, they're fascinated. They want to think about what it means for their individual lives, for their children's lives, for their communities, for themselves in the experiences they were having as a child. Um, public policy makers, police, social workers, teachers, chalker staff, all those people that I thought might be interested turn out to be interested. But they need the science to be accessible to them and described in a way that feels relevant and that doesn't feel scary with big words that don't make sense, where they don't feel patronized, and in fact, where they can be brave and curious because some of that science requires some real courage to engage with because once you realize how much your um, behavior as a parent is having on your child, 
that that takes a bit of courage to get your head around. And if we don't pay attention to the tone that we talk about that in, then parents understandably shut down because it's too scary to think about. So I've spent the last 10 years having good fun and lots of challenges to think, how do you get and help people to think about those things? So it's, I don't, it's something like, I don't know, it must be heading toward 100,000 people, have come to live events. Now, of course, we're doing everything online that lets more people come. We now, um, I now have a small team. We produce resources that help people to get this. And The Connected Baby was our very first one. So I had made a film which set out to communicate that basic message, which is that babies arrive already connected to other people. So in the last 10 years, we, we were talking connection and attachment and the prenatal science is coming forward. And now we have ACEs, which is, it's taking off. Can you take a moment to tell us what is the, what is the ACEs piece? Absolutely, I can. And that ties into your original question, which was about the police, which I've not forgotten. I know. <laughs> We're all going to go there. <laughs> um, in fact, can I go back to the police and just start there for a moment? Because yeah. it helps to make it really relevant. Yeah. Okay. So in 2004, in Scotland, something unusual was happening. There were um, a couple of key members of the police who worked in Glasgow. And at that point, Glasgow was seen as one of the most violent cities in Europe because we had a high number of deaths by stabbing. In Scotland, we don't have, uh, guns are not allowed to be owned by the general public. And so in America, you have a lot of shootings. In, uh, the key parts of Scotland, we had a lot of stabbings. A lot of that came from gang violence, but it was also intergenerational. So, um, you know, families where members had died or gone to prison, their children went to the same prison, their children went to the same prison, they were housed on the same street. It was just generation after generation. And eventually, these two key members of the police said, you know what, we're just locking people up. We're not reducing crime. Couldn't we do something different? Is our role as the police to arrest the bad people and lock them up? Or is our role as police to actually prevent crime and indeed prevent violence? Violence in all its forms, not just criminal violence. That's a really radical thought. Their names are uh, John Carnican and Karen McCluskey, and they convinced their boss to allow them to have some time to think about the violence problem in a new way and to, to start to talk to people that would give them ideas about what are other ways that you could approach and prevent violence. If they had not had the time to do that thinking and they had not had the support of their divisional commander, we wouldn't be where we are in Scotland today. And I pause to help us to think about the importance of leadership and the importance of curiosity 
and the importance of thinking outside the box. And at that point, I didn't know about the Violence Reduction Unit. I heard about them third hand. Um, I thought it sounded like they were doing some really fascinating things. They had begun to talk about the importance of early years, the idea that police were talking about babies. I thought it was a great idea. And I actually got approached to critique that idea that police should not be doing that. And I disagreed. And so I wrote to them and said, I don't know who you are, but I just want you to know that I think this is a really um, cr creative, important idea that you've had. And so John and Karen called me and they came and said, could we come and talk to you about child development? And therein started um, my support for the violence reduction unit that has lasted to this day. And I flag that because that becomes important to coming back to what is happening now, 15 years on. But it's worth thinking about how do you get a police department that's interested in babies? They got really criticized for that. People just said that is not the role of the police. And you know, that's a fascinating question. What is the role of the police? And who decides what the role of the police is? And what happens if the police decide that their role is to try to prevent violence rather than just cope with its consequences? And so the, the route that they went down, they began to see violence in a new way. Rather than define it as a criminal justice issue, they began to see it as a public health issue. And they began to talk about violence in a new way, that violence is a disease that you catch from the stress in relationships around you. And therefore, if it's a disease that you catch, you can also have inoculations against it. And that the key time in which to have an inoculation against violence is in those early years with predictable, warm relationships that feel safe and that will not wire young human beings for stress and anxiety, but that will wire them for internal safety so that you can handle things like uncertainty, anxiety, you can trust people, you can stay curious. And if you're wired for anxiety, all of those things are harder. And instead of an inoculation, which is artificial, this is what is uh, uh, built into your immune system and would and should be, like we say, a kindred. It's, we believe it's our human right to have this kind of connection. So if we, could if we had this mentality of providing the connection at the beginning, as a preventative measure to create wellness, this would be, uh, uh, this, this could change the population and change, is that what you saw? Absolutely, that, that is where the, the thinking around understanding these uh, key links and how relationships work on the body, that's exactly where it takes you, right? So you can, what you start to realize is that cultures are shaped by the way parents raise their children, by the way parents are able to raise their children. Because parents can't raise their children on their own. Parents raise their children in communities. So if you have communities that are really stressed, parents are stressed. That's inevitable, that's understandable. And if parents are stressed, then children pick up on it. And children become you know, their, their biology becomes tuned to stress because that's how child development works. You, you are in 
unconscious tune to the people who are crucial in your life. Robin Grill, who's another kindred um, associate, talks a lot about that. So he, in his fabulous book, Parenting for Peaceful World, uh, I talk about that book a lot in the work I do. Um, he talks about analyzing Nazi Germany and he traces back the rise in Nazi Germany to the kind of advice that was given to lots of German parents in the period of time before the Nazi rise. In other words, um, why, how did Hitler gain power? Why was he not just treated as a bit of a, you know, a kind of a talking crazy stuff? Sometimes people talk about the economics of what was happening. Sometimes people talk about the um, international relations at the time. Well, Robin Grill talks about how children were raised and how, um, how your ability to tolerate uncertainty makes you susceptible to particular kind of messages. And what Hitler promised was that he would save people from, from the enemy. If you are wired, that's, that was one of his messages. Um, so he created a them and an, and an us, and that he could protect you from the them. And so if you're wired for anxiety, and you don't even know that, it just feels like normal to you, and a whole lot of other people in your community are too, then it, make, it, it puts you at risk of people um, promising to bring you safety, but that bring with it all sorts of other consequences. And so Robin Grill tries to trace that kind of history when he talks about Nazi Germany, and he traces that in a number of other cultures as well. So that's a really big picture um, vision. It's, it speaks to me of just how important the way we care for our children is. And so the police in Glasgow got interested in what kind of caring were lots of children in Glasgow getting what were their early childhoods like and that became part of the new strategy that they brought to thinking about violence they thought in terms of gang membership as membership as meeting the needs for a relationship yeah. they thought in terms of purposeful lives so if people don't have jobs and they don't feel part of a the wider community then human beings because of our attachment system which we're biologically endowed with, we want to belong. So gangs are a good place to belong to. And if you have um, stress in your early childhood, that makes it hard to manage your emotions. We can come back to that if we like. If the people around you who are part of your tribe, a gang, are engaging in violence, well, then that just comes to seem normal to you. And so they began to ask lots of questions, fascinating questions about um, what are the roles that the human need for relationship is playing in the violence problem in Glasgow. 
and to skip 10 years into the future through a variety of strategies, but all embedded in understanding relationships and, and support and helping people to feel worthwhile and valued, they've cut the rate of violence in Glasgow by 50%. With, with all the costs that go with that, re reducing those with the, um, with saving the sadness with human lives of people who are lost in the way that grief ripples out, they have really been able to make a, an impact on the violence in Glasgow. And just last week, in fact, just this week, um, there was a journalist who uh, covered the history of the Violence Reduction Unit on national television here in the UK because she was trying to tell the story of how Scotland reduced violence because she's hoping that the same kinds of insights might have an impact in London where the rates of youth violence and stabbing are very rapidly climbing. So trying to help other people to get curious about how Scotland did that and began to see policing differently and violence differently. Um, that's one of her goals. Interestingly, it's, it's an interesting challenge to try to help people to be willing to define violence as uh, through a public health lens, as, as a disease, rather than just about what bad people do. This video that you uh, just posted recently that is, uh, is it 10 years old? The one where you're talking to yeah. the two uh, violent yeah. reduction crime unit uh, heads. So, but it's a beautifully done video, by the way, uh, I should say. And I found the most remarkable part of it was, uh, is it John? Is John Carnican. He leads with curiosity and he, but he does it as a, clearly a very seasoned investigator and, and police officer. And he says, murders and suicides are not happenstance. They, they are, uh, there's something, it's not, it's not, they're not usually premeditated. So when he becomes curious uh, about what is it that's pre, going to predict this happening, what is contributing to this pattern that, uh, and then he, to hear him articulate the connection between childhood and uh, the violence uh, that they're trying to ramp down. Uh, and this is again, a 10 year old interview, but it's completely relevant and, and remarkable to watch for today. I, that, I, I, I felt like this is the crack. This is the crack in the wall. It has to be curiosity. We have to, uh, you know, breathe, pause, and allow something in ourselves to open up and make room for the possibility that uh, there there can be another way to approach uh, violence. Uh, his just his uh, again the curiosity, and I, I we began to wonder aloud, what's the connection here? <laughs> Where does this begin? Because it, it, that word that he used was is a, a very Scottish word. It's not murder. Isn't happenstance? He says. He absolutely does say that. He and Karen, who is the other person interviewed in the film, and they are the co-founders of the Violence Reduction Unit. And as, as they would both say, it's the Violence Reduction Unit. It's not the Violent Crime Reduction Unit. It's the Violence Reduction Unit. Oh. So they are interested in domestic violence, racism, community violence, uh, bullying, um, child abuse, 
-hmm. so, so they began to see their the scope of what they were doing as about violence in in much more broadly defined than just criminal violence and that then allows them to see that if you go back to the gang warfare in Glasgow, um, they would describe it that it's just as likely that you would be the young man ending up dead as you were the young man doing the killing. Mm. So that, um, so that it's, it's happening in particular communities that, that the communities that are stressed that doesn't mean the meaning that the, the the gang activity is happening in particular communities um and i think that one of our problems is that we can go well it's those communities over there and if i'm safe in my community i don't have to think about that community but part of the message they were trying to say is um that there is no them in us you know that um, that what happens in one community ripples out to other communities. So for instance, um, taxpayers pay to put people in prison, right? So um, um, taxpayers pay for educational systems. If children aren't benefiting as fully as they might from those educational systems, the taxpayers money got wasted. Mm -hmm. Now, I suppose one response to that is, yeah, well, I don't want to put my money into educating other people's children. I don't want to put my money into childcare for other people's children. I don't want to, um, I'm perfectly happy to have people locked up in prison um, as long as my family is not at risk. So we can move, we can respond to that in a fear-based way and move further and further and further apart so that we're all living in our own little prisons because we're scared of each other. Mm -hmm. A society can absolutely get to that point. Yeah. You're going to have to put a lot of money into protecting yourself from other people. You're going to have, um, you, your life is going to be much more restricted. You're, in other words, you're good. And you can think of all sorts of ways in which, what does a life based on fear look like? Or you can get curious about seeing in new ways and making connections. Okay. So, I think of it this way, if you just come back to the criminal justice issue, okay. It turns out that children who live scary, stressed lives early in their, and in their childhood, but particularly early in their childhood, become, become wired for anxiety. And then that makes it harder for them to manage their emotions and manage their behavior. And so prisons are full of people who led traumatized childhoods. I sometimes call prisons warehouses for traumatized people. There's a documentary out now uh, uh, based on ACEs and prisons. Yes, there's a documentary out for ACEs. And, um, and in fact, there are a, a num there are lots of people who've become interested in what happens with a traumatized childhood. And ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences, is one of the latest um, ways to frame what happens with a, a childhood that, where you feel stressed and scared and you experience lots of trauma. 
And I can come back to that in a minute if you like, but it raises a very interesting question. What happens if prisons are full of, are full with, with people who led, uh, who, who experienced chaos and trauma when they were children? How does that change our understanding of what the prison system is doing? Um, what happened to have people get there? And are we willing to get curious about that? Or are we so attached to blame that we're willing to pay more money for it? We're willing to cause more misery for it. How much are we willing to pay in order to stay attached to blame of bad people? If we are willing to shift to a place of curiosity, there are all sorts of other solutions that are possible that cost less money and that help people to live fulfilling lives. For me, the crucial opening is people who are willing to get curious and to give up blame. And that's part of what the Violence Reduction Unit was able to do. They were able to help people to be more curious. And the science of adverse childhood experiences and attachment are some of the things that helped them to do that. So I, I want to go to a more thorough look at ACEs. But before I do that, I just want to tell our listeners that you can go to kindredmedia.org and there is, um, you can see the trailer and go to the links for the documentary on ACEs in prison, which is called Step Inside the Circle. And that is a fairly new yeah. documentary. Yep. So can we just take a moment? I kind of want to go back to this AdWords Childhood Events survey that was done that is being used now as a tool to focus people's attention in a, in a very uh, concise way on the connection between childhood and lifelong wellness or illness. Um, yep. How, what is that? How's that tool been fashioned and how's it being used right now? <laughs> let me go back to the science for a moment. Okay. Um, in fact, let me go way far back with the science. So, okay. because I see adverse childhood experiences rather than events and that, that language for some people getting it really precisely is really important. Okay. Um, and we can come back to talk about the language if we want to. Okay. In the 1940s, um, scientists like John Bowlby and James Robertson here in the UK began to realize in deeper ways the importance of relationships and that um, children's, um, children were being shaped in really deep ways by the experiences of their mothers and their fathers and that led and other people in their lives and that led to what is often seen as attachment theory. And so a lot of people did work on attachment theory for a number of decades, and that has an interesting history in and of itself. And when I talked with you 10 years ago, I reckon I was talking a lot about attachment. Adverse childhood experiences, the science framed that way, um, the first publication was done in 1998. So in other words, it's been around for about 20 years. I see ACEs, which is short for Adverse Childhood Experiences. <clears throat> so lots of people use that acronym now. I see that as a continuation of the attachment work. That publication was done by two scientists, um, Vincent Felitti and Robert Anda. And the key insight that they had, uh, that they were talking about, that they, that they wanted uh, to wider understanding of, was that 
they had data that showed that if you had had um, stressful, chaotic things happen in your childhood, like domestic violence, a parent who was in prison, a parent with mental illness, a parent who used um, substances, uh, parents who were divorced, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, that they could track with a correlational design an impact on adult health problems. So they were able to show a relationship between childhood trauma and mm, heart disease, liver disease, diabetes, as well as um, alcohol addictions, drug addictions, as well as mental health difficulties like depression and um, mental health disorders. And they did that with a really big sample of 17,000 people. So it was really robust. And they published that in 1998. And then a number of other studies have followed since then. In 2014-ish, uh, James Redford, who's a filmmaker, got frustrated because he knew about that study and he thought that the wider public should also know about that study. And indeed, we had been talking about that study in Scotland. It was part of what the police department were talking about. It was part of the way they explained how violence could carry on. But it was one of, of, a, of a kind of a whole variety of pieces of scientific evidence that they were using to talk about. Well, in 2014, James Redford begins to make the film that becomes the resilience film where he's talking about that science. And in 2017, we showed that film in Scotland. And it, at the time, we just saw it as a tool, as one more tool for helping people to understand ACEs in that study, but to understand the impact of relationships more generally. What I had not predicted was the impact that that film was going to have. It had a dramatic impact here in Scotland and people began to get in new ways the impact of relationships on children's development and especially scary experiences. If you don't have a reliable, safe relationship in your life to help you with your scary experiences, then you become more wired for, for anxiety, you become hypervigilant, you have what I call saber-toothed tiger moments, i.e. become wired for the fear of death at, a, at the extreme. In other words, your body is wired for, for stress and worry and threat. How do you help people to understand that? Well, that film had a dramatic impact here in Scotland. And what I learned from it was something really important. You can have lots of science that is useful to people and that I think they would be fascinated by, but that very often this, the science doesn't leave the journals on its own. That I think we need to think more deeply about how you translate science for the wider public. Because now there is an ACEs movement 
and uh, and that film has certainly helped here in Scotland and in the UK and in parts of the US. We didn't have an attachment movement. I, I think that we have an ACEs movement in Scotland because that film helped enough people to now understand the science in a deeper way. And that has led to all sorts of other um, public responses and a, a tremendous amount of interest here in Scotland. And that film was the crucial thing that helped to gather momentum. And so I think we need to think harder as scientists about how we translate key scientific discoveries. We need to think about how we reach the public with us. So in the United States, uh, Nadine Burke Harris, who is now the Surgeon General for California, uh, is leading, uh, trying to lead a movement of ACEs awareness in that state. And she wrote the book, The Deepest Well, to try to help people understand ACEs. But I, I found, to your point about trying to bring the science forward and to help researchers um, and scientists to embrace this and to uh, you know, use it, uh, apply it to their field, what she talks about um, as, you know, as being one of the biggest hurdles is that she would present this science at conferences <laughs> And she said no one would, was interested, the, the participants and academics and science would just, you know, they were just crickets. And then she would go down to her table to pack up her uh, books and get ready to leave. And the people that were interested were the people who were working the conference, uh, people who were waiting the tables and uh, putting together the, the event came over to her and said, you know, I, I heard what you said and I, I want to know more about this. So it, I think in her mind, and certainly in mine as an activist for the last 22 years, I have definitely been focused on ways around some of the institutions that seem to want to be gatekeepers for parents uh, who just want the information so they know what is the best course uh, for their children, best decisions to make, um, and certainly how to create a culture that would be life-affirming and attachment-oriented. Um, but we don't seem to get that through the gatekeepers. <laughs> so. I think it all starts with curiosity. So I work with a lot of organizations myself. So I'll work with anybody who wants to talk about this, what I call this stuff, in order to help us to, for it to not feel scary. And I think everyone deserves to know this stuff. In my head, I am always talking to individuals, right? So I am always talking, even if, so if I'm, um, if I'm addressing an audience of nurses or I'm, um, I'm working with a school or I'm talking to doctors or to politicians, in my head, I remember that in this audience, there are mothers and fathers and grandparents and sisters and people who were once children because if you get people interested at a personal level, they listen to that information in a new way. Mm. And so I never, ever forget that I'm talking to individuals who have the capacity to be curious. And then, if, and then individuals bring their curiosity mm -hmm. to, to organizations and to communities and if you can help people to feel confident, then they act on it. 
And that's exactly what happened with our ACEs movement here is that when, so let me just tell that story to help pe give people a vision for what happened. Okay. Um, it was two tiny organizations that decided to show that film. One of them was Mind, Connected Baby, and another is an organization called Reattachment, which worked with um, kinship carers and foster carers. And that organization was led by a woman named Tina Hendry. And Tina and I worked together and we knew the film was coming. And so we said to the UK distributors, could we show that film here in Scotland? And uh, they said, sure. And we said, it'd be the first time, we'll call it the premiere, the Scottish premiere, which it was. Now we gave it a big name. Yeah, yeah. And you, but it becomes really interesting to go, what should you call it? Should you call it a premiere? Is that too big? Well, it was, and we wanted to celebrate it. But we only, we only thought it was gonna be one screening. And so we put it up on social media. We booked a cinema. I didn't actually know that you could book a cinema at that point. It turns out you can. You can, you know, you can rent the space like any other space. And we hoped that we would sell enough tickets to pay for that space. We had no money. And we just took a risk. We thought it was important enough that to bring to the wider public, we were willing to take a chance on it. And it sold out. In a few days, all the tickets were gone, which stunned us. And then people began to write to us and say, uh, I couldn't get a ticket to that screening and you've got no extra tickets. Could you not bring that film to Edinburgh, which is another city here in Scotland? And we went, oh, we hadn't thought about that. Well, well okay, I guess we could. So we booked another cinema and the tickets sold out. And then people said, well, could you bring that to Dunfermline? Couldn't you bring that to Inverness? And before you knew it, we found ourselves in the middle of all this clamor to see that film. We had not anticipated it. We were exhausted by the end of the summer. 2,500 people came to see that film in 25 different locations in Scotland. We ended up booking um, church halls, community centers. Um, on one occasion, we showed it in a childcare center with people sitting on the floor. So I'm trying to tell the story of a totally organic community movement. Mm. And then the crucial bit was people went back to their organizations and said, you have to show this film. They wrote to their local like city government and said, you have to purchase this film. You have to get a license to this film. All the teachers who work in this city deserve to see that film. And they just badgered them. We had no anticipation that that was going to happen. And suddenly that film was everywhere around Scotland. People following us on social media in England, across the border said, how could we get hold of the film? People in Northern Ireland uh, got in contact and said, do you think we could do a screening like that? My, my little team at Connected Baby said, sure, we'll help you do the posters. And before you know it, there was just this explosion of interest. And I tell that story a lot now because it helps to show there was no plan. We had no money. It, the government wasn't in charge of it. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting point because here in Scotland, the government or local government or national government is often seen as organizing these things. So lots of people assume that the government would be in charge of it. We did get the National Public Health Organization 
to help us to distribute um, knowledge of it. And because they were putting work in, their logo went on our poster. But they weren't fronting it. They didn't put in money. In other words, it was entirely community-led. Wow. And I tell that story because I hope it might inspire other people to think, okay, we could do that. Mm -hmm. Because that has happened in a number of places in America <clears throat> where people are talking about ACES and people can, there are several key websites now. So ACES Connection um, is one of them. Yeah. Where, where people who come to understand, know about ACES and want to talk to other people who are trying to do things are coming together. I tell the story of what happened at a community level here in Scotland so that other people will know that it's possible. <clears throat> now, in America, people are much more divided about what the role of government should be. Yes. And in fact, if the government were doing this, some people will be highly suspicious of it. Yes. <laughs> and people think that private organizations should be the sort of organizations that would fund this. Okay. That's a really interesting question. If you have science that is useful to people, how do you get it out to the public? Who funds that? What happens if nobody funds it? Um, how do you talk about debate around it? Because we could come back to there's some big debate around the ACEs model now. And there is some big debate here in Scotland. Not everybody is in favor of that way of thinking about human experience and development. What do you do when there's a big debate if people aren't trained in scientific methods? How do you help them to get more confident and more curious? So I have become really fascinated by that process of translating science for the public. What is the story behind what happens? I presume that at some point in the future, the story of how um, the film Resilience came to have such an impact in Scotland it might be forgotten. People may have no memory that it was done by two little tiny organizations that had no money. Those sorts of things can get lost in the detail. And yet knowing the story helps to inspire people who want to make change in the area. Mm -hmm. Nadine Burke Harris called her book, The Deepest Well. Mm -hmm. And Nadine Burke Harris is in that film, Resilience. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, after that film tour with another organiz small organization here in Scotland that are called Tigers, and they work with young people to help them to find jobs. Uh, and I do work with them. And um, so they're run by a woman named Pauline Scott. So I presume at some point she and her team might listen to this. They also run a nursery called Lullaby Lane. Okay, so Pauline and I were thinking about what are other ways that we could help people to think about ACEs? and relationships. Mm -hmm. In other words, not just the experiences that happen to children yeah. that are in the scoring system right. that ACEs use, but to actually think about relationships, not just the kinds of events. That's been really important here in Scotland to keep relationships at the center of our thinking. So we said, mm, do you think Nadine Burke Harris would come? Lots of people have seen her in the film. She was, she was good in the film. Do you think if we emailed her, she would come? So basically over a glass of wine, we went, well, we could email her. I hope she's listening to this. <clears throat> we could email her. She'll probably say no, we'll probably not get her. She'll probably have a team. 
I don't know if we'd be able, we, we haven't got any money. How would we pay for her? Well, if you don't email her, we'll never know. She'll probably give her a chance to say no. She didn't say no. Do you know she, she and her team emailed us back and said, okay, she would come. I'll never forget the night that we got the email. It was, it was late at night. I text Pauline and said, are you up? Are you up? I have to give you this news. The vision that she was then able to bring about, in other words, she could bring a bigger vision for how she was talking about ACEs, what she was trying to help people to do. She wasn't yet the Surgeon General in California then. So Pauline and I said, let's have an event. Do you suppose we could get 500 people to come? What kind of venue do you need to hire to, that has 500 people at it? That's a big venue in Scotland. Before we were done, 2,500 people came. All right, I, I just find that so awesome. <laughs> Remarkable. So, so the idea that there are 2,500 people together in a big room yes. <laughs> wanting to talk about childhood trauma yeah. and the importance of relationships was massive. And it wasn't, it wasn't led by a multinational corporation with lots of money. It wasn't led with the, by the government. It was led by two small organizations who took a risk and who said, I think we could do this if we thought creatively. And luckily we could just keep booking more tiers of seats. Otherwise, we'd have had to cap it, right? So luckily, we had a big enough venue that let all those people come, right? People would not have come to see Nadine Burkharis if they hadn't seen the film because they wouldn't have known who she was. Yeah, okay. Well, okay. But by, and then we developed, we began to develop a vision. We began to talk about, could we be the first ace-aware nation in the world? Could we reach every single member, citizen of Scotland? There are five million. Now, by American standards, that sounds crazy. You know, there are lots of cities that are bigger than five billion people. How can you have a whole nation with only five million people? Well, you know what? That was part of our strength, we thought. Yeah. Could we, in other words, we talked about a nation, Lisa. People belong to a nation. We wanted a vision for what could our nation be like. What kind of values do we want? What do we want for its people? What do we want for our children? Our children? In other words, it's not them and us, it's our children. And so we began to put the science of ACEs into a, a bigger vision that was about belonging rather than simply disperse information about trauma we were trying to use it to, to a vision about who we wanted to be and to have big conversations about that. Mm. And that energy still continues. There are people who think, um, should we be doing more? Who would lead that? Is it going fast enough? What if people disagree? All of those are important questions. Mm -hmm. um, some people are uncomfortable about the debate. So here's where some of the debate lies. Um, should we be <clears throat> should we be scoring trauma on a 10 point scale that's how uh Feliti and anda developed their original aces methodology 
Um, Nadine Barcaris has developed a particular kind of screening tool that she uses in, with PD, pediatricians. So she has a, a view that she has developed over time in, in trying to make use of an ACEs frame in the way that she thinks about health and the way that she thinks about violence in neighborhoods and the way that she thinks about racism. Mm -hmm. and the vision that she has for the change that could happen in California. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> we were not having those kinds of big discussions in Scotland before the ACEs frame came along. So although some people are really do not like that scoring, some people really do not like that the first original publication of um, by Felidi and Anda in 1998 was, was with a middle-class sample. They think that it should have been more representative with a, with a more diverse class, classes um, and more um, diverse um, ethnic makeup. Mm -hmm. Now, you can have very interesting discussions about um, what are the limitations of a particular design that still make the findings that it produces worthwhile and valuable. But the key point for me is whatever debate one wants to bring to ACEs, we were not having a public discussion about childhood trauma before the ACEs frame came along. So there is something valuable about the ACEs frame that helps people to step in and become more curious. And I'm grateful every day now for that debate because I think children have a right to have safe, reliable relationships. I think they have a right to expect adults who are curious about their emotional needs. I think we have a moral responsibility as adults to offer that to our children. And I hope that the science helps more adults to get curious about that as well. We pay terrible prices when children in our communities experience uncertainty and fear and chaos. And if families struggle for whatever reason to meet the needs of their children, then schools can step in and do a lot as well. So there are whole ripples. If you understand the key idea that scary childhoods change your biology and that has consequences for the people around you. I, I wanna tell the listener that we have the ACEs quiz on Kindred as well. You can just put ACES quiz and it pops right up. It is one of our most popular uh, uh, pieces on the website. In fact, anything, every time I tag something as ACES, people go right to it. And that, so, you know, evidence people are finding out about it and they're very curious. Um, but, but before we um, go away from the uh, how are ACEs and, and this piece playing out in Scotland? I did want you to touch really quickly on childcare and schools because I have seen your presentations on, um, on YouTube where you're speaking to an audience, I think, of childcare providers. And I absolutely adore uh, and deeply appreciate the way you present <laughs> because you're very courageous for one and saying, look, <laughs> to not be aware of attachment science is to cause damage. You just put it out there. This is, you're not gonna like this. You know, you may not, you're reading the audience while you're saying this and saying, some of you are shaking your heads. You're, you're very aware of their response to what you're bringing. 
but I, but the part that uh, I, I found to be remarkable and, um, and just heartwarming is you explain the, the point of view of the child and, and the, going into a childcare facility, the child, if you told the child these people are being paid to care for you, they would be appalled because <laughs> <laughs> no, they love me and I love them. And to have a policy that says, oh, you have to move the child around and then you break relationships all the time, unaware of the importance that this child care provider is, what significance they have in this child's mind and the impact of that on their biology, you know, lifelong potentially, to just have that kind of disruptive policy and pattern in place. Um, yeah, I do put it that way. Uh, uh -huh. I if you state things in strong ways, edgy ways, people pay closer attention to what you just said because they're uncomfortable about it. The, the tricky line is to try to say it in a way that helps them to pay attention without tipping them into guilt or shame. Anger is even better than guilt or shame. Right. So how do you help us to think more deeply about the importance of relationships? There are tons of people who are trying to get out this information. Some, you know, other names are Bruce Perry, Dan Siegel, Dan Hughes. I've already talked about Bowlby. You know, there are lots of and people, um, Darsha Narvez, Erica Kostakis. You know, I could name lots of people who have tried to help the wider public to understand the importance of relationships. But clearly there's a struggle because some of the things I say still feel a surprise to people like childcare. Okay, in America, um, childcare is not funded by the government and, um, and maternity leave is not even funded. You know, it's not a federal, requirement. Okay, that must mean that either we don't understand how important those early years are, or we just haven't heard the science of that, or that we don't really get how important they are, or actually that we don't care, i.e. that the people in power don't care, or don't really get it. Okay. Here in Scotland, we have uh, maternity leave that's funded by the government. We have childcare that's funded by the government. Um, in fact, we just expanded the childcare provision here in, in Scotland um, over the last few years um, so that you, um, uh, for children between three and four especially, um, have 1140 hours of government paid childcare a year. And children, even who are two, who are um, in families where childcare seem to be helpful, the government pays for that. Mm. And although there is some debate about that, one of the things it does is that it helps parents to, um, to in terms of employment. Okay, some people think that actually we should be using that money in other ways to support parents to stay home with their children. And that's another debate. Okay, but the question that you're asking is, okay, so children, yeah, including babies, but, um, are cared for 
by people that we call childcare staff. If, if children come to love those staff, and children are wired to love the, the adults that they spend time with, they're, they're wired to do that biologically. They don't know that they're paid to take care of you. They would be appalled if they knew that. Young children think that you're there because you love them. Otherwise, biologically, they don't know why you would be there. You know, evolutionarily, the, for you know, the evolutionary history of the human species, children hung out with their tribe, with their extended family. So from a child's perspective, childcare staff are part of their extended family. They're, you know, they're, I don't know, Auntie Mary and Uncle Jason, Grandma Molly. And so if they come to feel, if they come to love that person, if they come to like their company, miss them, if you move them to a new childcare setting and they never see those people again, that's a bereavement. Now, if we were in a room together, I would say the word bereavement and then I would wait for everybody to take in a breath because it's scary. So I would say it in a very soft voice because it's gonna be hard enough to get your head around that because there's gonna be parents in the audience who suddenly see the implication of the fact that they, that they moved their child's childcare without ever thinking about that. They're suddenly gonna be thinking, would I have done that if I, if I had heard her say that before? And then people are gonna to have to decide how they feel about what I just said some people might get angry. Some people might go to a place of guilt. What I want to do is help us to get curious. Mm -hmm. So let me move to the last few months. We, uh, here in Scotland, we went into lockdown because of COVID. Mm -hmm. So almost overnight, childcare uh, settings closed down, schools closed down. So children went home to be with their families and they missed their childcare workers, mm -hmm. staff. And because we call them workers and staff, we grown-ups think of them as employed to do this. We don't think of it through, a, through the child's view. Okay. Some nurseries who really un, had really got this attachment view under their belt worked hard to stay attached to those children. In, in connection with those children. They sent videos, they sent letters, they uh, put on videos the songs that they sang, they took videos of the toys that they had been playing with, they um, took, took videos of their children in the garden, they sent key rings home with the pictures of their key staff. And spontaneously, the parents of those children began to send back videos of the children responding to the videos, to the key rings, to the letters. Um, so one of the things that has happened here in Scotland is that, and some of those were put on social media, people have been able to see even babies, you know, 10 month olds, children who are not talking yet, light up at the sound of that person's voice, get really close to the screen with the video of that person. So you start to see the connection that's there that lots of people might assume, well, the children won't remember because we can't remember consciously as adults back to those early times. So we have this idea that children forget. 
children, children don't forget. Um, one of the phrases that often gets used a lot in the trauma world is that the body keeps the score. Oh, yeah. Meaning that the body remembers what you don't always remember consciously. Okay. If, if we coped with a lot of grief and a lot of uncertainty because we ended up at several different childcare settings when we were young, that will have left in, that will have left traces on our bodies in ways that our parents never meant to, in ways that the childcare staff never meant to. So if you're a, if your setting leaves children to cry a lot. And, and there are lots of people who think that if we just ignore children's crying, they'll learn to not cry. Children cry because they are trying to express that they need something. So if your childcare staff ratio is too high to attend to the needs of those children, then those experiences are shaping children's attachment experiences in the same way that they would be um, experienced at home. Being able to think about the importance of those early years and the importance of the kind of care that we provide in those early years is really, it really, really matters. But if you, if you haven't got the idea that those early experiences are going to change you biology, biologically, people just don't even know to get started with those kinds of questions. Right. So <clears throat> I want to segue here into how do you appeal to adults because over the course of working with families who are trying to go against, uh, be, you know, once you decide to do attachment in America, you're considered counterculture. And uh, there were a number of organizations I worked with over the years who have um, developed uh, community groups and support groups and gathering groups for parents who are interested in this piece. But, you know, even the parents who are interested, when I would go present to them, you could see, uh, you know, the, the language, you have to be careful about the language because of the guilt and shame and fear that is so ready here in our, in our, in American society to pounce on parents and really pummel them. Yeah. So I appreciate that you have um, the, the Tigers and Teddies program, which I'd like you to tell how that kind of goes in the side door and skips all the shame and fear. And then uh, I'd love to hear about your book as well, The uh, Little Iceberg. Okay, those are great questions. If you, if you come back to how do you talk about this stuff in a way that doesn't make people feel um, guilty and ashamed, and pressured, but helps them to be curious. Um, I often use metaphors because it helps people to get ideas. And I found myself trying to talk about um, what it's like to feel comforted and safe. And I found myself talking about those as, well, that's the experience you have with a, like, with a teddy bear. They're like teddy bear moments when you feel safe and relaxed and comfortable. And when you get scared and you feel threatened, it's like if a saber-toothed tiger were chasing you. Okay. And I pulled saber-toothed tiger out of the air in those early days because it's easy to imagine the great big teeth. Okay. I now talk about saber-toothed tigers and teddy bears all the time as a metaphor 
for helping us to think about the experiences of threat and of safety. Mm. And that metaphoric language helps people to get it immediately. There is no other purpose than a teddy bear than to help you to feel safe and comforted. Mm. But it actually helps us to think about the like real teddy bears. Real teddy bears matter to children because they help them to feel safe. So lots of children want to take teddy bears with them to childcare. What happens if you don't know that those teddy bears are really important and you just see it as an object? And you say something like, we don't want you to lose your teddy bear, so we're going to leave it here in your basket at the door. And you don't know that actually it's having the teddy bear with you under your arm so that you can feel the fur, so that you can, um, so that you can feel the warmth of the teddy, that all the, that sensory familiarity is part of what helps you to feel safe and helps you to learn at childcare or helps you to make friends at childcare that helps you to feel confident in the world. Teddy bears do that for young children. So I want to use teddy bear language as a way, as a real metaphor for talking about what it feels like internally, but also to help us to think in light and yet serious ways about what are the ways that children feel safe. And teddy bears is one of those. Um, Saber-toothed tigers is kind of the same, really? So when children, when children have that meltdown when you're, okay, so um, my nine month old was perfectly happy. I left them in the hall. I just wanted to go to the bathroom and they were playing with all their blocks and they were fine and I shut the door and they started screaming at me. Mommy, 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 mommy. All they wanted to do was go to the bathroom. It's the, what I call a saber-toothed tiger moment. Because from an adult perspective, you think, why is the kid screaming at me? And if you feel totally beleaguered by your child screaming at you, when you come out of the bathroom, if you speak sharply to that child because you feel overwhelmed, it's totally understandable. Raising kids is hard. But if you speak sharply every time you come out of the bathroom, the child starts to expect the reunions with you will be full of anxiety. And they start to, they become wired for that. They're, you know, they grow into that bio, that bio, biologically, they get anxious about the reunion with you. And that starts to shape their attachment style. Okay, how do you help parents to get curious about why their child is crying when it makes no sense to you, especially if you feel accused by the child or you feel irritated by the child? Or actually, you, you are quite happy to pick up your child and rock your child and you don't understand why the other parents aren't. All of those are saber-toothed tiger moments for the children and any emotions that are difficult for us, I think of as saber-toothed tiger moments. And that's because they're drawing on the parts of the stress system in the human body that are there to help you to deal with difficult moments. At the extreme end, that would be running away from a saber-toothed tiger. At a less extreme end, that might be sitting at, a, at traffic lights. You know, sitting at traffic lights doesn't cause everybody stress, but it causes some people stress because then they go into road rage, right? So managing your emotional system um, is, is part of stress. People often don't think of emotions as part of our stress system. 
And yet, when you stop to think about it, that's exactly what they are. If you have experiences that wire your body for saber-toothed tiger moments, then, then you find it harder to regulate your emotions. And that comes out in your behavior. And attachment experiences shape that emotional system. Once upon a time, attachment scientists saw attachment as in a cognitive way. It was about your expectations of relationships, your cognitive working model. Or they saw it as about behavior. Nowadays, attachment scientists see attachment as about the emotional regulatory system. So that's where it starts to overlap with ACEs. That if you have experiences of adults that are predictable and safe, then it wires you biologically different than if they're chaotic. And what I try to do is to find ways to help people to think about that in a curious way rather than an accused way. So we've, we've just this summer released my, the second edition of my book called Sabertooth Tigers and Teddy Bears. The Connected Baby Guide to Attachment. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's purposely written in an extremely accessible style. It's not a big fact book. It's got lots of photographs in it so that it makes these ideas accessible to anybody. And um, I now have people who write and say, um, your book changed my life because I can now see my own childhood in a different way. Um, your book has made me rethink my mother's childhood really deeply in a way I never thought about. Um, the, 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 this makes me think about how we could bring this information to schools or to police or to criminal justice. So what I've tried to do is to make um, those ideas really accessible to everyday life. And in it, I tell stories. I think that's my favorite part of it. I tell stories of real people who put this information to use. So I tell the story of a lawyer that understanding attachment and ACEs changed the way that he argues the case for, um, for his people who are accused of crimes. He's changed the way that he presents those cases to judges. He talks more about the trauma in their childhood. I tell the story of a bank robber. I tell the story of schools who spent part of their school budget on purchasing lots of teddy bears so that the teddy bears are there when the children walk through the door because they know that many of those children will have left chaotic households that morning. I tell the story of a parent who said, I didn't used to know this and now I'm a better able to support my child who's really anxious and I probably helped to cause some of her anxiety. I didn't mean to and I didn't know that now but I can forgive myself for what I didn't know. And I can get curious about how to help her now. Rather than telling people how to parent, which pisses a lot of people off, right. what I try to do is to help us to understand how children and babies develop so that we can get curious about what they need rather than be told how to parent them. So that's the approach that I try to come at this. And what I find is that if people don't feel shamed, bossed, pressured, they step in with curiosity. In my experience, people really want to know this stuff. And metaphors like saber-toothed tigers and teddy bears give us a light way of engaging with those questions.
That is a fantastic tool, and I'm so very happy to hear about it. And, and as you were saying, uh, the the parenting piece is so tricky uh, because of the prescriptive uh, nature of it. And we have a lot of those in the United States that, that, that don't look at the, the attachment science. So it's kind of relationship void um, uh, dictator. I, I think you know, it's exactly what you said about uh, what happened in Germany when you had the uh, authoritarian style of parenting in place, and then you have a dictator come into power and people who follow him and you're wondering why, how could this happen? Um, but one preceded the other. So this piece that you're bringing in with relationship oriented, the um, giving parents tools to be present in a way that they want to be present and curious is, is just remarkable. And I know we're about at the end of our time, but I did want to, to talk just for a moment about your Little Iceberg book because it is also a glorious book and tool. It's not just the children's book. It is also <laughs> a metaphor and it comes, <laughs> it comes with a, a, a little book on the side that tells you what's really going on in the children's book. So the parent or the educator, and child care, care prof professional can have this guide for themselves. Um, it's, it's, I, I said it, it gives your intelligence something, and then it also your intellect, if you need both. Um, so tell us about the little iceberg. It all goes back to this question of how do you help people to know this, right? And, and so one of the things I haven't stressed is there are no perfect parents. There are no perfect families. You don't have to get it right all the time. It's one of the reasons that I talk about the power of making up. And so it helps people to relax. Okay, so we've got more and more excited on my little team about what could we, what kind of resources could we produce that would help people to get this. And so we've begun to work with other authors and other uh, people who are talking about this wider, um, you know, the, the wider questions about trauma and relationships and um, with lots of sectors like schools and police and politicians and okay how do we do that broadly so the other book we brought out this summer is is absolutely the little iceberg and it's written by a head teacher it's a story that he wrote for his um the children in his school and uh and i had done some work with his school and he began to say i've got this story i wonder how i could get it published and before you know it i had said my team could publish that for you and we held a competition and found a children's book illustrator. And this summer we released what was an 18 month project of a metaphoric story of a child who is lonely, traumatized, disconnected, scared. That could be a foster child. It could be um, uh, a child who's living in a family who doesn't, um, who doesn't feel like they can talk to other members of that family and who's scared and doesn't feel connected. Uh, if you just think of children in all the different ways that they might be disconnected. Okay, the little iceberg is floating through a wide open ocean and is scared to be connected, to talk to, to make friends with any of the other creatures in that ocean. And she's well protected because she's covered in all that ice. But if she stays with all that ice covering her, she, she will not know the joy of connection. So the story is of a story of a little bird who comes and helps and chips away 
at that ice. A little bird against a big iceberg. And that if the little bird, a friend, a new person, a, a stable relationship who can stick with it, even when the iceberg basically says, go away, I didn't ask for you to land on me. It's the story of how the ice drops off and she melts and becomes part of the ocean around her. Wow. And so the metaphor is, helps us to get the power of connection and how we can help. And so the, the story itself is full of all sorts of things you can do to help children who feel disconnected. Yeah. But, but just to be sure that people were able to pick up on all of those details, we've published it with a guide called Making Sense of Trauma, which helps you to see the deeper meaning on all those pages. And, and what we have found is that lots of schools are purchasing that book, some of them for every single classroom in their school, especially now as we come out of COVID lockdown, because there are lots of children who will have experienced very un uncertain, chaotic times in households. We don't actually know what's happening for a lot of families during this time. And that book will, be, will give away for teachers to talk with children about what is happening for them, but to do it in a, through a story rather than um, perhaps through talking about their direct experience. And kind of my favorite, we, we, we sent the book to have reviews basically from lots of different kinds of people. My favorite review was from a little boy who's nine years old, who's named Callum, who read the book and said, his favorite bit at the end was when the rainbow comes out because things are bright now for the little iceberg, if that's not giving away the end of the story. And he said, because of that, I rate this book infinity out of infinity. <laughs> and so I decided if that's what a nine-year-old thinks, he's a really good reviewer. <laughs> really good that was very good infinity out of infinity all right well we have so much to catch up on and i am so grateful that our, our listeners hopefully you have stuck with us um through this marathon um interview and talk with suzanne zedike but uh, suzanne tell us where we can go to find some of these resources they're all on our website and that's the connected baby website so that's www.connectedbaby.net and so Connected Baby is an organization I founded with my team in order to produce resources. We host events and we stage exhibitions. And in fact, we are now working on collecting photographs of reunions after COVID to stage an exhibition called Stories of Reconnection because reconnection highlights um, the importance of reunions, which was a key message of attachment. Um, and so you can find all the resources on our website, on the resources page and see what else we do. We, um, we have a discussion about the science that underpins that. And we are in the process of, of developing a whole range of resources. So if you keep checking back, you're likely to find new things there. Um, and we, we wanted to make this available so that it reached well beyond the borders of Scotland. And we have lots of people now from Netherlands, Australia, New Zealand, America, Canada, who, um, who regularly turn up on our site and we welcome everybody 
And it's why it's really exciting to be talking to you again, Lisa. It kind of feels like a full circle. Oh, it is. It's just uh, remarkable. And I can't believe it's been 10 years, but okay. <laughs> We're here for the long haul anyway. Well, well, thank you so, so much. I look forward to having you back to Kindred. And if you are listening to this call, you can find a transcript of our call at kindredmedia.org, uh, along with some other resources there for ACEs and attachment for the new story of childhood, parenthood, and the human family. The, I often think of it as the science of human connection. Yes. Yeah. And it begins in babyhood and it carries all the way throughout our lives. There's even now science that tells us that the symptoms that you exhibit in dementia can be traced back to your attachment style in the first year of life. There is so much for us to know that people don't know. I think they deserve to. Well, thank you for being here to share with us the science and making it accessible to us. Thank you thank for you. having me, Lisa. Thank you. Bye-bye.